0: I'm Dorothy Kern, and today I want to uh, expose you to the topic of protein dynamics in biology. Um, protein motion, a change of um, things over time, is a fundamental characteristic of um, biological function, and actually life. Um, since I was an undergrad, my big vision has been to um, be able to watch proteins in real time at atomic resolution, um, as I can show you right n- now over here, uh, arriving at a real-time movie of, for instance, an enzyme doing catalysis. But why should you care about protein dynamics? Let me use um, a macroscopic um, analogy to illustrate to you why we have to go beyond static snap- snapshots to understand biological function. Um, from this little um, picture here, you don't know my game. So, you don't know whether the ball goes in. But, macroscopically, to watch action is very simple. You just buy a video camera. However, that's, of course, not possible on a microscopic level. Um, In fact, what I want to tell you is that macroscopic protein dynamics is actually rooted in the microscopic dancing of individual atoms. And what I would like to do today is show you how protein dynamics is linked to biological function and which biophysical techniques... the most prominent biophysical techniques you can use to visualize it. If you keep asking the questions, how do proteins work, you arrive at the atomic resolution level, the smallest building blocks um, of... um, of... of biology. Structural biology has revolutionized um, our understanding of proteins on this atomic level. However, I would argue that these beautiful structures I show you will not tell you how they work. What my lab has done in the last years is to add the fourth dimension to structural biology to directly watch proteins in action. So, I just show you a little overview here of the the kind of work we have... we have worked on. Um, For instance, on the first one over there, you actually see a signaling protein. And unlike the textbooks uh, picture that you think the protein is in the inactive state and then it gets, for instance, phosphorylated and, and switches over to an active structure, what we found is that actually the uh, protein constantly flips back and forth, jumps between the two states. Uh, and so, it's, it's a very different uh, picture of how signaling actually works. Um, down at the bottom, um, I can show you another example how how we uh, visualized how a multi-drug transporter transports drugs, which you just put in the cell from the inside back to the outside, um, via a constant conformational change. Um, even questions like um, neurobiology, for instance, uh, long-term memory, uh, which I'm showing you, show you over here... Um, can be explained by the dynamic interactions between an, uh, an enzyme restarting and a, uh, a receptor in the brain. Uh, this, for instance, was a quite interesting story where we worked on the cocaine dependence um, on, on mice. Um, on the right side over there, um, you see um, that for protein protein interactions, it's again, it's not a rigid body docking, but protein protein interactions are mediated by a, a dynamic interplay between the two players. And even, lastly, uh, in... for drug binding, uh, which was... you know, the dogma has been that it's uh, this small molecule just docks onto and uh, protein inhibits, we have shown that the crucial component for rational drug design uh, is actually protein dynamics. So, after I made you probably already dizzy looking... watching all these movies, I better tell you how we actually arriving at these... Uh, at these uh, f- four-dimensional uh, movies. Um, I show you a collection of biophysical methods which allow us to see the invisible. And I call it invisible because, of course, you cannot watch single atoms under a microscope, for sure not dancing in real time uh, on, on, on their different timescales. Um, so, I will mention some of those methods in my talk. Um, what I show you, for instance, is uh, NMR spectroscopy, which stands for nuclear magnetic resonance, which is our bread and butter methods, and I would argue one of the best methods to measure motions on an atomic resolution. We combine that with mass spectrometry, X-ray crystallography, um, very, um, you know, old-fashioned kinetic experiments, for instance, stop-flow and quench-flow experiments, uh, and... or single molecule and energy transfer experiments. Uh, Very lately, we also have been using bioinformatics which I show you down here on the bottom, um, for for um, analyzing the evolution of, of, of protein function. And finally, all these experimental methods are being combined with computation, which, of course, plays a very b- a big role to finally come up with our dancing uh, molecules. These dancing molecules are fun to watch, but we have to find a unifying le- language... Um, to describe our biophysical systems, in this case, our proteins. And the unifying language which is unambiguous, uh, whether you are li- living in India or China or America, um, or Australia, uh, is actually the free energy landscape. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about it, uh, the free energy of the systems. And so, what I show you here is probably one of the key things for the lecture um, and why you actually want to uh, pay attention in your classes to physical chemistry. Um, If you have uh, a protein, which, for instance, interconverts between two different states, for instance, state A and state B, which could be the inactive and active state, um, to describe the entire system, we want to do three things. We want to figure out the the populations between the states. And so, what you see, actually, that, of course, in the energy landscape, uh, a state is defined as a minimum uh, in in the free energy landscape, over here and over there. The interconversion, meaning going from state A to state B, is going over the transition state. So, in the energy landscape, um, the transition state is defined as a saddle point and the high a high point of the free energy landscape. So, what I described right now are the two major states. We call them kinetically distinct states because they are separated by a pretty big free energy barrier. And as you know, the height of the free energy barrier that defines the rate of interconversion. Big barrier means slow. Little barrier means fast. So, when we go down uh, from the Tier 0 to Tier 1, we, of course, also have smaller... over there, we have actually smaller... smaller um, barriers, meaning that these interconversions are faster. For instance, nanosecond timescale. We call them Tier 1. And even further down, we have more microstates which could be hundreds of thousands within that A state, which are interconverting in the picosecond timescale. And we call them entropic substates. And finally, if you want to really completely describe the systems, we would like to know the structures of all these snapshots... and uh, uh, structures which are being sampled. So, that's really the big-picture goal, because if we can describe it, our system in this way, uh, we, we fully have, uh, have understood it. Now, what kind of motions belong to these picoseconds, nanoseconds, picosecond timescales? Um, the very fast timescales, if you have learned from... Ch- in chemistry, are really bond vibrations. Moving up from femtoseconds to picoseconds to nanoseconds, we go into rotations of single bonds, loop motions, and cytane t- rotations. And then finally, going all the way up to millisecond seconds, or mi- even hours, we are talking about very collective motions of many atoms together. Um, The the last question now is, what kind of methods could we use? Um, So, I have pinpointed a few methods which you can see are used to describe different timescales of motions over here. And this will be now uh, part of the talk to explain to you how to use these methods to figure out motions on these different timescales. For the remainder of the talk, I thought to be actually really, like, hands-on, I'm choosing to describe um, how to study protein motions and how the motions are dictating biological function on one system, which is the caloric power of enzymes during catalysis. It has always intrigued me how amazing um, enzymes are in their caloric power. Um, this enzyme, for instance, is an absolutely essential enzyme in every cell, in every organism because it uh, catalyzes the interconversion between ATP and AMP to two ADP molecules. So, why is this reaction so essential for every cell? It contains... it it, uh, maintains the right nucleotide concentrations in the cell. Uh, You might not know, but if your ATP concentration in the cell drops by 1 millimolar, you're dead. So, this reaction without the enzyme would take 7,000 years the enzyme can complete this chemical reaction within 10 milliseconds. So, that's sort of, really, the fascinating power of enzymes, and we are far away from understanding how these sophisticated proteins can do it. So, now, what have scientists done so far? The traditional way of uh, describing enzymatic powers is using, actually, turnover numbers, how fast the enzyme is turning over a substrate... Or, for instance, Emichela's um, in menten constant, which is really the sort of affinity of the protein, and substrate. What I wanted to do, and that was sort of my, you know, dream since I was an undergrad, to watch the enzyme in action at the atomic resolution, sort of shown with that little blurb um, of... 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 of picture here. So, how do we get there? I told you the very next st- step is that we have to figure out the free energy landscape. Before we do that, of course, I told you we have to describe all states. In order to figure out which states are actually sampled during catalysis, um, a very important step is to come from an enzyme to actually putting in the scheme of the reaction. And for the scheme, I mean to write down every single state uh, we can imagine the enzyme is sampling. So, what you see over here, the enzyme, the free enzyme, over there. Um, uh, s- can... can bind substrates. It has to bind, actually, two substrates, ATP and AMP, to make the ternary complex. Then this enzyme is, can do a conformational change. Then chemistry happens. Then another conformational change. And then finally, substrate have to be released. So, already, on this... you know, only 20 kilodalton protein, uh, it's going to sample at least 10 uh, microscopic steps. Now, from this scheme, we would finally would want to actually uh, arrive at figuring out the relative populations in the conversion rate and structures, which would be the free energy landscape. The first method I want to introduce is uh, NMR spectroscopy. Not only because it's close to my heart, because... but but I think it is really the unique uh, method to watch every single atom in the protein doing its function dancing. And the reason is because we can figure out the entire time range of motions from picoseconds all the way to hours by just choosing the right methods down over here in our NMR toolbox. I told you we can measure every single atom in a protein. Another unique thing is that we actually can measure things at equilibrium. So, many other spectroscopic methods, you have to disturb the equilibrium, and you're watching how you are re-equilibrating. Whereas with NMR, you can actually measure the equilibrium. And most importantly, I would say, we can measure under physiological conditions. We can change temperature, pH, uh, substrate concentrations. We are in solution and having our protein doing what it wants to do, and while it's doing its function watching. So... This is sort of um, why I really think that is a very powerful method for protein dynamics. So, what's the physics behind it? I thought I'm comparing it to a method which I'm sure everybody has encountered uh, already, which is magnetic resonance imaging. Where, if you have, a, for instance, an injury, your whole body gets pushed into a big magnet to see what kind of injury for instance, you have on the, on the... on the knee. So, it's an imaging method. It turns out we use exactly the same method for nuclear magnetic resonance, except that we don't put a whole body in there to image tissue, but rather our individual proteins where we want to actually wa- watch or look at every single atom. Um, so, the frequency of excitation is in the radio wave lengths, which means you can actually listen to the excitation uh, of your individual atoms, which I show you right now. So, what you just heard was actually the free induction decay, the um, release of the... of the wavelengths energies on the radio wave of a single atom. But, of course, a protein over here um, consists of thousands of atoms. And we would like to watch or listen to every single atom. So, for that, we can actually excite all atoms in this protein and record their frequency, which are different. For instance, here I show you a proton a proton-nitrogen correlated spectrum. So, each point over here belongs to one amide in your protein as a signature, which has a unique frequency. So, now we can listen to the entire protein resonating, which I play right now. Doesn't it sound just like a song? So, this is sort of the physics behind, right? To figure out at which frequencies they resonate. But now, we want to figure out how fast they dance. So, we have to do one more trick to our spins or our nuclei. So, what we're going to do is we're going to record um, the relaxation of these spins from an excited state. And I decided, again, to put some cartoons on top here for the biologists, and then some little equations for the physics down here. Um, so, let's compare our spins with runners. If we actually put them in the excited state, what we actually do, we um, put them on the stadium at the starting line, and they're all together starting, running around the stadium, and they're... These, these frequencies you just heard. They're together, so they are on resonance. That's how you call it in physics. But over time, some will run faster and some will run slower, and it's this defacing in our stadium, which we call transverse relaxation. And the speed of this relaxation directly tells us about how fast these proteins move. And I've shown you, of course, that these are single exponential decays uh, for the... who the people like, actually, physics. And so we can measure that. One more thing we have to do to our runners. We don't just want to say, okay, um, these atoms are moving. We actually want to describe our free energy landscape. Remember what we... what our goal was to figure out the relative populations, the rate of interconversions, and even structural information. And very, very exciting, um, the Palmer Lab, now whoops, almost 20 years ago, figured out one more trick we can do to our runners. I told you they are running with different speeds. If we now, during this relaxation time, flip the runners so that Bolt, who was the fastest, will be last, and the one who was last will be, fa- will be the fastest, they will actually finish in the stadium at the same time. And what we call that in physics, we are refocusing our pulses. And it's this extra trick where we actually refocus our, our relaxation in the X-Y plane, which allows us uh, to get all these... all, all the information we need uh, about the timescales, the populations, and structural information. All right. I think I have overloaded you. Maybe there's a little bit too much NMR, but I just get excited about it. Um, let's look at some data now. Um, my postdocs Magnus and Wu did these experiments on this enzyme doing catalysis. I told you we can watch the enzyme during catalysis. So, we are putting our enzyme in the NMR tube, and as soon as we add substrate, it's actually catalyzing this reaction. And it turns out, because it's a fully reversible reaction, it's going to do this forever. We have samples which have been running through this enzymatic cycle for two months. And while... while it's doing its job, we can measure these relaxation times and therefore get information about protein dynamics. We found a very exciting result. What I show you here, that all these red residues, over here, actually seem to be moving around doing catalysis. And what we found is that what we're actually detecting is the opening and closing of this protein, which I show you here in the open state and here in the closed state. And it turns out that this opening-closing... the the closing is very fast. The opening is way slower. The opening is 40 per second. If we now compare that rate constant with how fast this enzyme makes ATP, it's actually within experimental error. So, what we learned was our first surprise. The rate-limiting step, the highest barrier in the energy landscape, is actually not the chemical step of breaking a phosphate and putting it over there, but rather a large conformational change of opening and closing. And it turns out that this actually seems to be a reoccurring theme in biology that very often the limiting step in biology is actually how fast these enzymes or or proteins can dance. But the whole point of this enzyme is not to dance around, but to actually make that chemistry, right? This is what classic enzymology is focusing on. How can the the protein take ATP and AMP to make two ADP molecules? So, break a a phosphoanhydride bond and make a new one, right? So, here we have the two ADP molecules. The reason it's hard to measure is it's because it's not the rate-limiting step. And not the rate-limiting step, it's basically hard, hard to visualize because it's too fast. So, the way we went around it is use a different method, um, X-ray crystallography. So, you could argue crystallography, you're frozen in the a crystal, it's a static uh, mecha- method. However, we have recorded uh, crystal, many crystallographic data, data at room temperature. And it turns out, at room temperature, things are still moving in the crystal. And what I've shown you over here is the two ATP molecules in the active site. One is color... very much colored, because this smells like it's a dynamic molecule. You see this beta-phosphate? Uh, Superimposing uh, all our crystal structures, it looks like that this uh, beta-phosphate ph- is the one which wants to fly over to make ATP. Coinciding with this flexibility, which we see in the active site is this arginine, which seems to grab the negatively charged phosphate to move it over. So, even so, crystallography had the reputation with our static method, we actually can get quite a lot of dynamic information. So, this state over here is actually our enzyme substrate uh, complex. Now, of course, we would like to know how it's actually doing the reaction to go over the transition state. The transition state is not populated because it's on the top of the energy landscape. So, the very next thing we can do is to try to mimic it with a transition state analog, which I'm showing you over here. So, an ADP molecule, a magnesium aluminum fluoride, and an AMP molecule is mimicking right when this beta-phosphate is trying to fly from one one step to the other. And so, Yang Jin finally succeeded to get this high-resolution crystal structure. And what you see is that the magnesium aluminum fluoride, which mimics the... the... the the phosphate in the transition state is... is directly in the middle between the donor and acceptor. So, this gives us snapshots, but still not dynamics. Let me introduce you a different method which will give us more dynamic information. So, that is a time-resolved single-molecule molecule, fluorescence energy transfer. Um, it was a very fun collaboration with my little brother, Christian, and uh, um, his uh, grad student, Maria, and uh, my postdoc, Katie. And it's always good to have a more brilliant um, uh, a brother in, 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 the, uh, in the family. So, I called my brother and said, you know, we have to measure um, this protein while it's doing its reaction, and uh, it's a rare event, so I need your help. And so, the idea of a single-molecule fluorescence energy transfer experiment is it's like a spectroscopic ruler. Uh, you're exciting a fluorescence donor, and this energy gets transferred to the acceptor only when the two um, um, donor acceptors are very close. So, it's a directly spectroscopic ruler. So, if we excite it's the green dye and we get a lot of um, um, fluorescence on the red one, we know they're close together. Whereas if you get very little over here, they're further away. So we can do that on a single molecule level. We can attach, right over here, a single um, enzyme molecule on a cover slide and watch in real time the red and green fluorescence uh, um, uh, correlating. So again, far away means um, I mean, if if there's very little transfer, they're far away, and if they're close together, they're close. uh, They are they are coming closer together. So this is a thought experiment. And now I'm showing you the... the real data. And so, here's where our next big surprise we found. We measured first, actually, uh, the enzyme, the happy enzyme, in the presence of magnesium. I f- sort of forgot to mention you. I showed you on the structure. But it turns out magnesium is very essential for the catalysis for kinases. And uh, it was a su- subscribed... Described that magnesium is essential for that chemical step, the phosphor transfer, right? When the phosphate goes from one step to the other. So, but here we are measuring the opening and closing of the enzyme, right? So, if the fluorescence energy transfer is efficient, close to one over there, we are in the closed state. And if it's further away, we have very inefficient fluorescence transfer. So, what you can see that in real time is in milliseconds, this enzyme is opening and closing. But see what happens when we take the magnesium out. We thought if you take the magnesium out, only the chemical step, which is just the movement of a phosphate by one angstrom, is stopped. But in fact, it looks like now the opening closing is slowed down by about three orders of magnitude, because if you look at that time scale over here, you're staying in the closed state for several seconds. How can that be? Is the literature wrong? So, since we were so puzzled about this result, that magnesium is actually very essential for protein dynamics, we designed yet another method... Uh, experiment, which is based on a new method, uh, which I want to introduce now. It's called quench flow kinetics. So, what we can measure is a single turnover of a protein, or for, for instance, an enzyme, which is doing its first turnover. It's a fast mixing method. So, we're using our enzyme over here, mix it with a... with a substrate, very quickly, and the reaction goes. Then, in a second step, we can quench the reaction and then collect data uh, to... Uh, the uh, a sample for data analysis. So, what does it allow us? It allows us to look at the phosphor transfer over here, in the first turnover, and measure this step, even so, a later step might be slower. So, we could figure out how fast this fast phosphor transfer is in the first ter- turnover. Alright, so this is what I show you, the data I show you next. And here's the good and bad news. The good news is the experiment worked and the enzyme is wicked fast for its phosphor transfer. The bad news is it's too fast to be even caught. Because what you can see over here, within the dead time of the e- experiment, about fifty milliseconds, the entire enzyme has converted ADP to ATP. So, our method is is actually time-limited. So, in other words, nature has perfectionized the chemical step to be super fast. Okay? And then what you see over here are multiple turnovers now. That is a slow opening of the enzyme. So, what happens when you take the magnesium out? Remember what the single molecule FRED experiment showed us, that the opening is very slow. But what happens to the chemical step? Again, we see a burst... Which is a phosphor transfer step followed by the slow opening. Yes, the opening is very slow, but now you see that also the phosphor transfer, that bus- this, this first burst, is also very slow. So, what we have learned is actually a very um, amazing thing what nature does. First of all, I can tell you why you have to eat magnesium. I don't know what biotransfer magnesium means. You figure that out. Um, but what we have learned is that nature is that efficient or clever that it uses a single atom to catalyze every essential step in this entire reaction. Think about one single end atom is doing this entire job. It can only do it when it's bound to the enzyme. It accelerates the phosphor transfer step by more than five orders of magnitude relative to the uncatalyzed rate. But at the same time it's the same magnesium which catalyzes the conformational change by three orders of magnitude. So, I would call it moonlighting of a single atom in an enzyme. You, being curious, may ask the question, how can a single atom do that? And for this, we sort of tried to do a couple of clever experiments. So, the first thing we did is we replaced the magnesium with other divalent cations. And what we learned is, by doing enzyme kinetic experiments, that the rate of chemistry is significantly slower for all the other divalent cations... So, nature has optimized the chemical step really for magnesium. In contrast, the conformational change, which was our new surprise that it's also essential for this reaction, is actually independent of which divalent metal you use. Which means it seems to be just a pure electrostatic effect. So, these are NMR data collected at different... uh, with different metals in, in... on the active side. Which brings me to the next method, uh, which you do want to know about using for... for protein dynamics, which are computational methods. Of course, in the computer, you can calculate everything. So, the first thing I'm going to show you is I, the calculation of the electrostatic potential in the active site. You can see our two ADP molecules over here and over there. You see our arginines coming down. Arginines, as you know, are positively charged interacting with the negatively charged phosphates. I told you we need that for chemistry to move the phosphate around. But, at the end of the day, these interactions need to be broken to open up the enzyme to relieve the substrate. And remember, that's our rate limiting step. Very strong charge interactions are very, very hard to break. So, what is nature doing? It's putting... The other positively charged magnesium on the opposite side of 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 of, of this interaction, thereby weakening the electrostatic interactions. Very clever mechanism. What else can we do with computational methods? One of the most famous things, of course, you all heard about is molecular dynamic simulations, where we can finally get these dancing dancing proteins, which looks very 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 interesting. What is actually the, 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 the physics behind it? All we are going to do is calculating the law... Newton's laws of motions uh, between the atoms. So, it's a classical description of the system. And so, what I show you over here is actually the opening and closing of the enzyme, that rate-limiting step. There's one other thing I want to mention over there. We can also visualize, in the computer, single water molecules, which, of course, we cannot do an experiment. And that answered, to me... A very puzzling question. My question really has been how can this enzyme efficiently do phosphor transfer but avoid hydrolysis, which is the energetically favorable reaction? And it turns out, if you think about enzymes, the hardest thing is actually to suppress energetically favorable reaction and not to catalyze the reaction you want to. And the favorable reaction by far is hydrolysis. I told you, if you hydrolyze our ATP, we will be dead in a minute. So, this enzyme has to be extremely good of suppressing hydrolysis. I thought what's going to happen is that it's going to strip out all the waters on the active site. But that's not what happens. All these little balls over here, these are all water molecules right in the cavity of the the active site. How is it avoiding um, hydrolysis? It's actually keeping the water molecules far enough away from the phosphate that it cannot do hydrolysis. And finally... Um, using quantum mechanically calculations, we can directly watch that phosphor transfer step, watch you' are breaking over here um, the, the, the phosphate bond and you put it over there. Of course, we need quantum mechanical calculations there because we have to break bonds. So this is just giving you just a really flair of um, what kind of um, uh, questions you can answer with computational methods. Clearly, a computational methods need to be combined with experiments. Coming back, what I've shown you here is how combining a array, really complementary array of biophysical methods, where we're able to figure out, on a free energy landscape, how this enzyme works and how it's doing its amazing power of catalysis. At the end, I want to actually come to something which was very surprising. People thought that if you take these enzymes and they don't see a substrate, they're basically resting. They're asleep which is not true. If you look, actually, at this enzyme in the asleep state, meaning there's no substrate bound, there's a lot of motion going on. And, in fact, the motions are already mimicking what the enzyme needs to do during catalysis. So, what we are calling it is, like, that the dynamic personality is built... it's built in the enzyme, and it's underlies catalysis. So, let me just quickly show you how we actually saw that... The motions which are finally needed for catalysis are really an intrinsic property of the enzyme. Over there, I show you in red, orange, and yellow, three structures which from this one, from, from Adelaide kinase, from this kinase in the resting state, meaning there's no substrate bound. What you can see is that the lids are already partially closing. So what we had were three molecules in the asymmetric unit cell, and they had different structures. And they moved exactly along the tra- uh, trajectory where it should go during catalysis, which is the green structure. So, there's a partial closure already directly along the, the directory where it wants to go during catalysis. So, the question is, of course, crystallography gives us snapshots, but not time scales. That's why we used molecular dynamics simulations to ask the question... What is the timescale of this kind of motion? And it turns out this partially lit closure happens in nanosecond timescale. All good. Except we did one too many experiments. We actually now looked at this free enzyme by NMR spectroscopy I just showed you. And what we found there is that there's motion on the millisecond timescale. That's orders of magnitude slower. So, what are we missing? So, again, our single-molecule Fred experiments answered us the question because what we can see that, in real time, the enzyme, indeed, is doing a full closure, but it is much, much slower. So, in other words, you have a, a, a picture where you have fast timescale partial closure, and then is a rare event, which is much slower, of full closure. Which brings me to this, to the to the beginning of my talk to talk about the hierarchy in space and time. What do I mean as hierarchy in space and time? We want to link the slow motions over here to the fast motions. And they are, in fact, linked. Okay? So, I told you a lot about experiments to look how we go over the big mountain, right? The slow motions. But how about measuring these fast motions here? For this, we can measure how fast a bond vector, shown over here, an mi bond vector, is actually wiggling. And not only that we get the time scale, but we also get the amplitude. So we have measured those by NMR again. That's now picoseconds going down to these faster motions. And I show you those data as a continuous color scale. Blue meaning that it's um, a very small amplitude. So one would mean there's no, no amplitude change. And zero would be a completely isotropic motion. So what you see is that there are Hotspots, dynamic hotspots, the, the... the red ones, right? So, one more thing I want to explain to you. On the left side, I... I have data on a mesophilic protein, which have, which lives on... in normal, happy environments. And on the right side is actually a hypothermophilic enzyme, which actually lives in nature at, in the hot vents. So, what happens to these dynamic hotspots here? It turns out these are my elbows, These are the hinges which need to be flexible so that that my lid can move. So, what we see is fast timescale motions in my... in my elbow, so that actually my hand can move. So, fast timescale motions lead to slow timescale motions. Interestingly, this is directly linked to activity. Because if you look at the mesophilic and thermophilic enzyme, what we know that thermophilic enzymes at low temperatures, at 20 degrees, are very lousy. And the reason why they are slow is because their fast time score motions in their hinges, they're not red and yellow yet. They have no large amplitude. But see what happens when you go to a temperature where now the activities are matched. The activities from here and here are matched. And so are the, the dynamics in my elbow. So, that allows us now to put down together this hierarchical space of time of fast timescale motions more localized, leading to slower motions of more global changes. Of course, knowing the structures, we can ask the question, what dictates the differential flexibility in these hinges? And I'm just mentioning two things. One is aromatic packing. We rigidify the thermophile by packing a lot of aromatics together and therefore holding it together. And the second trick nature uses are prolines, because prolines, as you know, are an, uh, imides and restrict the backbone. To summarize um, what I would like you to take home, um, I've, I hope I have stimulated your appetite to uh, be intrigued about protein dynamics. Um, coming back to, to, the, to the beginning... There is no life without dynamics. And, of course, what is moving are structural ensembles. Um, so, whether it's signaling, membrane transport, neurobiology, drug binding, what we need to do is figuring out the free energy landscape of the systems to understand how the healthy, happy proteins in our body uh, work, and then to finally apply that to... Uh, to do rational drug design, to intervene with diseases, which will be the second part of... 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 of my lecture series. The most important slide is, of course, my team. I am standing here giving you the story, but in fact, these are the guys who did all the work, uh, my amazing team at Brandeis, and um, I must say, they are the reason why I love to go to work every morning. Thank you.